So um, I am going to preach to you guys this morning about impossible things, supernatural things, things that are impossible except for God, and things that are absolutely true because of his word. But as I talk to you guys about impossible things, and I say this often, but because it's always true, it's especially clear to me when I preach to you about impossible things that I can't do anything to make these things understandable to you or apprehensible to you, apprehendable to you, accessible to you. Um, I, I can't make these words meaningful to you for your lives. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And so I, I, we need him so much. We always do. I feel it so much this morning as I preach from Colossians 3. So would you all pray with me and let's just boldly beg God. Let's boldly beg him. Lord, we boldly beg. We, the beg part comes because we need you so much. We're, Lord, if you don't open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, we won't. If you don't protect me from error, I, I will preach error. If you don't make understandable what is spiritual and not earthly, we won't understand it. And so God, we need you so much. That's why we beg, but we boldly beg because we're your children, because you have already crushed your son to rescue us. So how much more, if you've done that, will you also give us all things we need if you've given us your only son? So we look forward to your help this morning, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Next week we head back to Malachi 3. Uh, we'll continue Malachi's section on giving. But this week I sense from the Lord that he would be pleased if we would dwell a little bit longer, specifically on Good Friday and Easter Sunday and their implications for us. So we want to do that. We want to go back to Holy Week. And in going back to Holy Week, I, I want to take you back to another week, the first one, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. The God who is love who lived outside of time and space in loving relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally holy, almighty God, who had and has no shame, no sin, no loneliness, no need, was perfect and perfectly satisfied in loving relationship in the triune community of the Godhead. This God ordained that he would create beings like him who could find their joy in him, in his perfect love, in all his perfections. He created them in his image so that they would have the capacity like him for thought 
and desire and choice and so that they would want and choose him, love and goodness. He did this so they could know him and love him who is life and love and goodness personified and so that they could be satisfied just as he was satisfied by him. That they could be satisfied by being in a relationship with the God who is love himself, the only and ultimate source of all goodness and beauty and holiness and joy. What could be better to do for them than to give them the ability to be satisfied by him? Because he is the most wonderful, loving, treasurable being in existence always was always will be he forever will only always be only god and so he created them with this capacity to enjoy him as he enjoys him in father son and spirit and in the beginning these created beings our first parents they did know god and they did love god and they did walk with god genesis 2 says gently and sweetly that our first parents would walk with God in the garden that he created for them. And whatever that manifested itself physically, it isn't just saying they walked around. It means that they had fellowship with him. They had intimacy with him. They had friendship with him. Unencumbered by sin. They knew his companionship. They knew his accepting love. Of course, his provision for all that they needed. And then in in, in a fateful moment, we all know about, they made this choice when the choice was offered to them to walk away from him. They believed lies about him and they rejected him as their God and their loving ruler. And so at once their life of trust and tender, humble joy in the friendship of God ended. And another kind of life took its place. Increasing selfishness, increasing frustration, increasing fear, increasing disorder, increasing anger, all ending in futility. It took over their experience. And by just deserts, what they deserved, that should have been that. That life of futility should have been the eternal fate, eternal shame, eternal darkness that should have been because they chose it their eternal fate for those who were made in God's image but refused to bear that image but thousands of years after that first week on Good Friday and Easter we're told that God went to the farthest lengths imaginable to restore to us the descendants of our, those first parents, to restore to us that life of trust and tenderness and humble joy in friendship with God that our first father and mother ended. And this morning, as I kind of alluded to earlier, I want to go back and look at some of the, 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 the lesser spoken about lengths. I just said that God went to the furthest lengths. Some of those links we know about more than others, but the links we're going to talk about today are lesser known and talked about, I, I believe, in most of our Christian experience. But they're crucial 
to consider. And the Lord wrote them in his word for us to consider. So we're going to look at those. And they're, they're all at least in seed form contained here in Colossians 3. So I'm going to read Colossians 3, 1 through 17. I'll only be spending most of our time in the first four verses. But I really want you to hear the whole picture here of this of, of the, the lengths God has gone to and their implication for us. So, Colossians 3, 1 through 12, or 1 through, yes, 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And I love the NIV translation of beloved, holy and dearly loved. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. 
Now, as I said earlier, we're not gonna pack everything here. I, I wanna do a deep dive into a few universe-sized truths here in the first four verses. And then I want to generally consider the implication of those first four verses, which are really what the rest of the passage is about. I love you guys, but you're super distracting. <laughs> you guys have to, you guys are like, you, you, I'm sorry I'm calling you out like you're in fifth grade, but <laughs> I'm having trouble focusing. All right, um, so, and, and plus I really want everybody to hear this. All right, so let's start um, with, with verses <laughs> one through four. I'm so sorry, you guys. That probably makes you guys feel so bad. Um, it just, it's like, what's going on over there? <laughs> it's too small a room. All right, um, so I wanna start with verses one through four, as I said, and we're gonna spend almost all our time here because these verses are really talking about what I, what I said in the beginning, the things that are just impossible. They're just impossible. Uh, they're supernatural. They're very difficult to comprehend, but they're crucial. So the first point of this morning's message is this. You died. You died. You died. If you're in Christ Jesus truly, if you're really his child, you died. Verse three, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. We, we often think of the Christian life as one in which we're called to die to ourselves, right? Take up your cross daily. The cross is an instrument of execution. Or e even here later in the passage, Paul tells us, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly, sinful desires, actions that sprout up within us that are evil. But notice in verse five, that's not what he is saying at all. He says, you died. You have died. It's a fact. The verb construction in the Greek doesn't allow a process of dying. It doesn't allow the future possibility that you might die. It's not a command to put yourself to death. It just says you have died. When did you die? You died 2,000 years ago. The word of God tells us in many places, and we'll look at a few now, that Jesus these are the impossible things I told you about. That Jesus spiritually united to himself. Spiritually. All of those who would ever believe in him when he went to the cross. He united himself with them. As he says in John 12, 32, regarding his death being raised up on that wooden plank and nailed there, he says, when I am lifted up, and he, John makes clear he was speaking of the crucifixion. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people, all men to myself. By all people, I believe he means white, black, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, not just Israel, but all who believed in him and who were to believe in him through the ages, they would all be drawn to Jesus spiritually, united with Jesus spiritually as he was lifted up on that cross. And there, do you know what happened to them? They died with him. You died with him. This is perhaps most specifically elaborated on in Romans 6. Listen to the impossible words of Romans 6. Do you, this is Romans 6 verses 3, and then a few phrases following through the section. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his 
death, into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We have been united with him in the likeness of his death. Our old self was crucified with him. We have died with Christ. This is the word of God in Romans 6. And what Paul means here is that at the fundamental spiritual core of you who belong to Christ Jesus, deeper than your skin and bones, deeper even than your conscious experience, there is a you. That you I think the you is what, what, David, what, what David in the Psalms calls his innermost being. It's the you that some people call our spirit. And that you that you were born as when you were conceived in your mother's womb, that you that came as a seed all the way from that first father in the garden who rejected God and whom you were a seed in him then, that you that because of Adam and your partaking of that sin in Adam in a way that's difficult for us to understand, that you that was contaminated and corrupted with his sinful nature that rebelled and rejected God, that you was united with Jesus. And as he went onto the cross, he took that you with him and all the sins in that you and all the sins that old you would produce. And there he was killed for those sins. But not only was he killed there, you were killed there. You don't remember dying. I don't remember dying. But the part of us that died wasn't our bodies. And it wasn't our conscious experience. It was a deeper part. I believe it was the deepest part It had to die with Christ, and it did. That is why Paul says, you have died. I can't explain this. This is metaphysics. I can help you understand there are things you you can't understand so that you might be able to understand this a little bit. I can help you understand there are things you can't understand right now so that you might be able to understand this a little bit. What I mean is, tell me where your spirit is. Tell me where your thoughts are. Where do they exist? Show them to me tangibly. Let me touch your feelings. I can't, right? Tell me where your soul is. Is it in your shoulder? Is it in your heart right here? That sounds good. It's in your heart, right? Well, People have heart transplants. Do their souls go into other people? People have the left hemisphere of their brain taken out, but they still survive. People have the right hemisphere, but they still survive. Your spirit is not a physical entity. It's a spiritual entity. So it it, it isn't locatable in in a physical realm. I don't think I can find your spirit inside your cerebellum. This is where we hear, this is where we see. So it's easy for us to think, well, our spirit must be here. But your spirit is your spirit. It's not your body. And it doesn't exist in a physical realm. It taps into this physical realm. Much like a 
uh, a TV antenna picks up an invisible electrical signal, you might say. So your computer can pick up people in a Zoom meeting who aren't in front of you. You're just picking up their signal. Your bodies might be kind of considered a computer that can pick up the soul outside you. I'm going into places that are difficult to understand already. But my point is that even though you don't understand this, God has given you enough to know that you can trust it. And so he says you died spiritually with him in Christ. But why? Why did you die? Why did you have to die? Well, no one can be two people at the same time. And if you were going to have a new life, your old life had to die. And you had to have a new life. Because your old life was condemned by God for rejecting him. And God carried out that sentence through his son. Your old life had to die, not just for justice sake, but so that something new could take its place. And so the Bible says not only did you die with Christ, but you rose with Christ. You rose with Christ. This is what he says in the first verse of Colossians. You have been raised with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. When Christ rose from the grave on that first Easter morning, spiritually, you were raised to life with him on that day. Let's go back to Romans 6 again. Starting in verse 4, you see this well. We have been buried with him through baptism into death. Why? So that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. You were raised with Christ three days after you were buried, you were killed with Christ on the third day. God did this in order that we would not be who we were that we would no longer be our innermost, deepest selves in Adam, that selfish, sin-dominated, God-refusing, God-not-wanting, dead-to-God people that we were born as. And he borned us again. <laughs> he birthed us again with Christ himself. He united us not only in Christ's death, but he united us with Christ's resurrection. Why? Because he united us with Christ. He didn't just unite us with these events on the cross and in the tomb. He united us with Christ. That's the best news here. He united us with all of his love and all of his goodness and all of his holiness and all of his wisdom. And that has become the center of our new life. See, previously, for Good Friday, he united Christ with all of our sin and all of our evil and all of our wickedness. And all of our condemnation. But he killed all that on the cross. And when he rose us, united with Christ on the grave, out of the grave, somehow, spiritually, impossible for us to fully understand, Jesus himself became united with us, intertwined with us, inseparable with us. Romans 6 First Corinthians 6 says, he who is united with Christ Jesus is one spirit with him. Second Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, 
the new has come. That's what Good Friday and Easter did. That's the way you died and rose new. Colossians 2, just a few verses earlier in the passage we're looking at today, Paul says, you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So you need to know that the word of God says that in truth, spiritually, you have already risen from the grave. Spiritually. Ephesians 2, 6 But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now we're so united with him that not only do we get raised, but we ascend with him to the heavenly places. In your innermost being, in a spiritual place you don't fully comprehend or are fully conscious of, you are with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. I know you don't remember dying on Calvary. I know that you don't remember rising in a garden tomb. (laughs) I know this is very difficult to understand. Paul knows that. God knows that. But at the deepest level, this is true of you in your spirits. And someday, the rest of you, your physical body in full, and your conscious experience, that place of our minds where we might say that this world and our spirit meets, someday all of that, your body and your conscious experience, will catch up with what's happened to your innermost being, with the eternal vitality that your innermost being already possesses in Christ Jesus. This is why we can say that our bodies are on 206 4th Street, but our spirits are in the holy throne room of God where Christ Jesus intercedes for us and where we are called to come and have access to in his name in any time of need. It's not just poetry. He's talking about dimensions of reality that aren't fully, we're not able to fully grasp, but they're true. You are in Christ Jesus. Paul uses physical language, the preposition in, to describe a spiritual reality that is, again, impossible to fully comprehend, but just as true as you are sitting here. You are seated in Christ Jesus at God's right hand. And this is all because we are united with Christ those who are in him are united to him. This is our union with Christ. I hope someday soon we might be able to spend weeks and weeks on what it means to be united with Christ, this union with Christ. But I I wanted to jump into it for a bit today because of Good Friday and Easter. This union with Christ, it never ends. If you are united with Christ now, you will be united with him for eternity. Because he never ends. You're so united with him that in verse four, Paul says, your life is hidden in Christ. The most real part of you is hidden 
in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you shall appear with him in glory. You're so united with Christ that Paul says this. This is my third and final point this morning. Christ is your life. Did you see what he said? When you died, your life is now hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you shall appear with him. He didn't, he didn't say you, you, Christ gives you life. Christ restores your life. Christ strengthens your life. Christ blesses your life. He says Christ is your life. In 1 John 5, the apostle calls Jesus the true God and eternal life. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. What do John and Jesus mean? Are they, are they simply being poetic? I think they're speaking to implications of this union, trying to explain what this union means and what it means for us. They're saying something so big, our minds can't quite contain it, but because it's true and because we need to take as much of it in as we can, they speak as clearly as they can. Jesus is your life. So on one hand, yes, we, we, we know some of these things and what they mean. You live spiritually now because he died for you and took the death you deserve. And, and we talked about this united in his death and resurrection. You live because he, you, he, you died with him and, and you rose united with him. But again, Paul says something else here. He is your life. He is your life. What is he talking about? It, so if, if you cut my arm right here, it would bleed out blood. Blood fills my veins. Blood gives vitality to every part of me. The Bible even talked about it this way. The life is in the blood. So if you cut my arm, it would bleed out blood. If you could find my spirit, my innermost being, and you cut that, do you know what would bleed out? Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit. Jesus is your life. He is the vitality that courses through every part of you that is truly spiritually alive. He is the substance of your spiritual life. He doesn't just give you spiritual life. He is spiritual life. Listen to how Paul articulated so totally in other places that Jesus was his life. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's so my life that it's almost as if I, I don't exist and Jesus exists now in me. Of course, he did live. But he, he lived always with the sense that Jesus was at the center of him, animating his actions, fueling his desires, giving him the will that he had. He says in Romans 15, 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Philippians 1:21. for me to live is Christ. 
And speaking to those same Philippians, he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Well, are they not willing? Are they not doing? Are the Philippians just robots and God's just like hitting keyboard commands? And like, no, no, he's saying that the Holy Spirit is so united with your spirit that the things that in godly ways you will and you want to do, that's God willing and wanting to do in you. That's why you will and want to do those things because God's and you are one. And so when you want to be kind to your mom instead of angry with her, that's Jesus in you wanting to be kind to your mom. And it's you, the new you with Jesus wanting to be kind with your mom. He said in Colossians 1.29 of his whole ministry, he said that he, he did all that he did. He labored all his labors with all his energy, Jesus' energy that so powerfully works within me. This is in keeping what Jesus said to his disciples in John 15. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself but must remain in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Of course, Philippians 4. Paul said, through him, I can do all things. The Christian life is not a life simply adhering to a set of doctrines. I'm a Christian because I believe Reformed theology. I'm a Christian because I'm not giving in to the new sexuality. I'm not giving in to um, universal, I I don't want to go down that route. There's there's plenty of good things that we should believe and wrong things that we should disavow, but that's not what makes a Christian a Christian. A Christian is a Christian in whom exists Jesus Christ, animating, willing, wanting, desiring, choosing in you. It's a life that is new. The old person the Christian was is not who they are anymore. They are a new person, but they're a new person with another person living at the very center of them that wasn't there before, united with them, always and forever, the risen Christ. The Christian life is the very living Christ welling up in us and pouring out of us to love, to love of God and others. And, and listen, that's, that's very qualified. I'm, I'm not talking about perfection. That's why, as we talked about last week, we're groaning for that final day when every aspect of remaining indwelling sin will be gone. But fundamentally, the new is come already. The new has already come. So when we look back at this huge passage, you have these few verses. You've died with Christ. You've risen with Christ. Christ is your life. And then you have this huge list of commandments, right? Paul talks about all these sins to put off, immorality and anger and greed and all these virtues to put on tenderness and compassion, forgiveness, a life lived full of thanksgiving to God. So in one sense, there are commands, but in another sense, all Paul is doing is describing Jesus Christ. 
in you and in me. He's describing the life of Jesus Christ in people. Go through that list and you can say, that's who Jesus was when he was on earth. And the truth is, it's impossible to live that kind of life unless Jesus is in you, sharing his life with you and through you. You can't give a person who doesn't have the life of Christ in them these commands and say, do these things. Thankfulness to God. Putting away anger and covetousness. No, that becomes possible because you died with Christ, you rose with Christ, and you're united to Christ. And, and that is crucial to see and believe, even if you can't fully understand it. And that's why Paul, in telling them to walk out this kind of life, he refuses to just run to these commands. He won't start there. He starts by walking out for, for them their death and resurrection in Jesus and the fact that his very life is flowing through their spiritual veins and that the only reason they can hope to walk out these commandments is that Jesus Christ is their life living in them. But if he is your life, if you did die with him and rise with him, if he is your power to be all that God wants you to be, if he's inside you, wanting and willing, then it is much more the natural reality that you would live this way, right? Compassion, tenderness, because that's who Jesus is. I once heard a Christian describe the Christian life this way. I love this. He said, Christ gave his life for us to place his life in us, to live his life through us. Christ gave his life for us to place his life in us, to live his life through us. I think that's a beautiful way to think about the believer's life. So how do we do this? Well, many of you have been Christians for many years and you're doing much of it already. But I want to just go back to some foundational things at the end here. The primary way, the first and most foundational way that we do this, that we experience we might want to say it this way, the way that we experience Christ as our life is through faith. By grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not of yourself. And so this is a call on us to believe this or to pray that God would help us to believe this, to say to him, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. These aren't the easiest things to understand. But the Lord wants us to believe these things as well as we can to study and reflect on these things. And he will work through that faith. But that's our first call is to believe these things, to believe him. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John tells us that Jesus was speaking of his Holy Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. So believe Jesus. And believing him means you believe what he says about you. 
Believe you died with Christ. Believe you rose with Christ. Believe that he is your strength, your life, your indwelling and dearest friend and greatest treasure. And then, it might look like taking a stand on these truths sometimes. Often, there might be internal pressure to sin and unbelief and and you may have to take a stand in your day. Well, we will all have to. But it might look like refusing to believe what your old man heart, which can still speak to us, and the devil who can still speak to us, and the world which can still speak to us, what it tells you about the bitterness that you're bound to and will never overcome, the lust that you're bound to and will never overcome, the laziness that you're bound to or never will overcome, or any number of, of old man inclinations. And it might mean you have to say no. My old man is trying to bully me, but that is not who I am anymore. I died and rose with Christ. I am new. Christ is my power to live this newness. Working through that kind of stand and refusal to give in to the old man who bullies you will often mean suffering, failing sometimes. Failing maybe often. The Holy Spirit will work through those moments of trial sometimes like that. Very oftentimes not like that at all, but over a life. I remember achieving, though, when I first came upon these truths, after I was a Christian, that I had died and was new in Christ, I remember achieving a a profoundly freeing escape from hating somebody who hated me. When I first became a Christian, there was another guy at this church, and I just had a sense he really didn't like me. And I could sense that. And it, it, what came out of my heart was I really didn't like him. We were serving together in a youth ministry we just had this real strong estrangement. And at some point I came across these truths and I just started saying to my, th- my thoughts when they would entice me to hate this person or perseverate on his hatred towards me, that is not who I am. I am dead to that. I am dead to that. It can sound like you're play acting. But for me it wasn't. I was, I was really trying to take these things seriously and refuse to give in to what the Lord was telling me was a lie, which was that I was bound to bitterness. I was going to be a prisoner of this hatred. And I couldn't love this person. I couldn't. And I just, I just kept praying and thinking through these passages and just saying, no, that's not who I am. I am dead to that power. Jesus lives inside of me. He's my life now. I can love this person. And it didn't happen like that. But over time, over days, over weeks, love for this person grew. Eventually, we talked about this. I told him what Christ had said to me about my bitterness towards him. He agreed. We became really good friends. It was always a little bit weird. Our temperaments didn't gel easily. There wasn't a Jonathan Saul thing ever. But there was no hatred that imprisoned us anymore. There was love. I was in his wedding. There was friendship. But what I have found as valuable as as taking kind of these stands on, on truth, which I think are crucial, is that we experience Christ as our life through communion with him, through relationship with him. Not to be cliche here, but, but I think this is where that sometimes maybe overapplied, but but valuable saying about Christianity when, when you'll hear people say, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. That, that has something to say to us. And again, I think that could be misused, but th- there's a point there that Christ is not, Christ is your life 
is not simply some abstract force that you can control or conjure up. He's not even simply like a principle or truth from scripture that you take your stand on. Kind of like what I did in the early days with, with my friend. God worked through that. But it's not like you can say, Christ is my life so I will be strong. I, I don't think that's the manner in which we're to walk this out. And the reason I said it is because Jesus isn't the force. Like he's not an abstract principle. He's a real person. He's a real person inside you. And so we relate to Jesus as a real person. Well, how do you relate to real people? You talk to them. You hear from them. Sometimes in difficulties, you plead with them. If you're really good friends, you enjoy them. Right? It's just basic things. Like we talk with people we're in relationship, right? So we talk to God. That's what prayer is. We talk to him about our anxieties and our fears. I'm still learning to stop running from God when I have anxieties and fears. Stop hiding from him when I feel shame. I've been a Christian a long time. My reflex is not to run to God when I'm afraid or when I have shame or when I have anger. My reflex is I have to hide from him and fix that or maybe dwell in that, but I can't just go to him automatically with it. That is so ingrained in me, my old man. But I'm learning that when I'm afraid or when I'm angry, when I'm frustrated, when failure is looming over my life like a hammer, oh, you're gonna fail, you're gonna fail, you're hopeless, you're hopeless, I'm learning to just talk to him. Just go to him with that first thing right away, the first thing. Oh, God, I had inclination to run from you. Here it is. Oh, it's so strong. That means I should run to you right now. You're my only hope. He's a real person. We go to him when we've offended him. I've offended him. What have I done? Oh man, I don't even want to know what I did yesterday. There's probably things he wants to tell me I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear. I don't want to go to him. I'm sure it's the, the record that is much bigger of crimes committed yesterday. You know, but he's my dad. He's not here to destroy me anymore. He did that already. <laughs> he killed me already. We went through that on the cross. He knows I struggle. So go to your dad because he's a real person. You're in relationship with him. And we hear from him. We listen to him. We look at his word, his scripture. But that's not a cold mechanical thing. Oh, I read these instructions in, in this manual. No, he's inside you. And as you read his word, very oftentimes in our experience, there's an inner witness of his spirit saying, this is true. This is true. The inner witness of his spirit says, this is important. Remember this. That happens inside us. It doesn't happen all the time as much as we want, but it happens. We get to see him in his word and the inner witness of him living inside us reveals him there with the eyes of our heart. And so we want to spend time listening to him because he's a real person. Trust in his promises. Take seriously his fatherly warnings. But of course, his intimacy, it, it, it's not just for times of study in our prayer closet. The Holy Spirit is someone who lives inside us to lead us, not just in our quiet time, but for the rest of the day. And so he does. He leads us. 
Philippians says he wills and works in us to do his purposes. Galatians 5 says that he desires in us. Romans 8 says that he leads us. He might lead us with promptings, whispers of his thoughts, when he wants to, when it's wise for us. And when he does that, he wants you practiced enough in his written word that you can recognize his voice and recognize when it's an imposter. But my point is, experiencing Christ as life in you is living in a day-to-day relationship with God. And there's mystery here. On one hand, sometimes Jesus, he just seems to swell up in us unannounced. We wake up in the morning and we find there's power, there's peace, there's joy. A lot of times it feels like there's just crickets and mouse poop in there. (laughs) Nothing left, paper clips and dust. That's how I wake up most mornings. He's his own person. And he decides in his grace what's best for us in terms of his experience of him, in terms of our experience of him. But as a person united to us, he has allowed himself in his sovereignty, he has allowed himself to be affected by us. He is touched when we obey him out of love, even imperfectly. He longs to have mercy on us when we stray. He's grieved in his heart when our hearts are cold towards him and he's jealous for our affection. When we're in pain, he's in pain. In all our afflictions, Isaiah says, he is afflicted. Oh, suffering. Speaking of life with Christ, experiencing Christ as your life, suffering is the place. Our suffering is especially a powerful means of experiencing communion with our indwelling life, Jesus Christ. It's a place he knows so well. It's a place that draws out his tenderness and compassion and sympathy more than we can know. We can wait long in places of suffering until at some appointed hour of his choosing, he crashes in with a preview of of the death-conquering life and joy that's coming forever for us. And he shows us how our suffering is, is, is actually doing something good. It's actually building us deeper into knowing him and seeing him and treasuring him. And for many of us, our deepest pain becomes something that we wouldn't ask for, but we'd never trade in because it's led to deeper joy in him. And that's what it's all about, is deepest joy in him. That's what it's all about. That's what you were made for. For the first time in years, the other day in a quiet time with my kids or a devotional time, I looked at my kids and I swore to them. I I never say I swear to you because it's just a tricky, scary thing. I said, kids, I swear to you. I swear to you. With everything I am, I swear to you. I want you to believe this. His love is better than life. His friendship, there's nothing that compares to it. Nothing. It's what you were made for. I swear to you on my life. Joy in him is what Adam lost and what we gain through the death and resurrection of our Jesus. That and more than Adam ever had because he was with Adam, but Jesus says now he will be in us, one with us. There's so much now I know that that hinders that joy, that qualifies our experience of it and mitigates against it. 
And so we groan, we anxiously long for the day when all those hindrances will be absolutely gone and joy in him will be full and never ending. But we have it now. We have, in part, we have it now. In the deepest place of us, he means to be the treasure of our life. He means for you to experience him even now as your greatest friend. He crucified your old person so this could be. He raised you new so this could be. And so, as we close, would you this morning afresh just spend a few moments in quietness and and take some time. And I'm going to do the same thing just to tell him again. Lord, this is hard to understand, but I want to see it. I want to believe it. I I want to believe that you're my life. I I receive as well as I can the truth of what you've done for me and your son that my old man has died on the cross with Jesus, that I've arisen anew in Christ. Lord, help me see this. Help me understand what it means in my experience. Help me right now. Help me right now, Lord. I want to know Jesus as my life, that he, he is my life. He's my power that's greater than all my sin. He's my power to know you and enjoy you. Help me to believe and experience these things. So I just want to take a moment and give you guys some quiet to be with the Lord and talk to him about these things, if you would. Let's do that now. Lord, you said that you have told us these things so that our joy would be complete. Our joy. You said you came that we might have life and have it abundantly. You say that you've come to give us rest through your humble and gentle heart. You say that your yoke is easy And your burden is light. Lord, I pray for all my brothers and sisters in this room. And I pray for myself. Oh Lord, with reverence I say, please work powerfully in us. Please work hard in us. To give us this in our experience more and more and more. You as rest. You as our joy. Life, you abundantly. Lord, I I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.